0: You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hello, folks. Today's podcast is one of our most popular episodes, our interview with New Testament scholar A.J. Levine that aired way back in season one, episode six, where we looked at the importance of seeing Jesus in his Jewish context. Hope you enjoy listening either again or for the first time. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Our topic today is an atheist and a Jew walk into the New Testament, and out comes Amy Jill A.J. Levine.
1: Yeah, it, A.J. was it was just a lot of fun to talk with her. She is the professor of New Testament and Jewish studies at the Vanderbilt Divinity School. spends a lot of time in churches, actually, which she talked a good bit about. Her books, short stories by Jesus. The misunderstood Jew. She's also the co-editor of the Jewish annotated New Testament. There's a lot going on there.
0: And she's one of the more fun and thoughtful people to, to talk with about the New Testament. What I appreciate about AJ is how she challenges simplistic Christian presumptions about how to read the New Testament. You know, it's, it's gotten sort of like to be a no-brainer, at least in, in, in the day and age that we live in, but it's, it's worth repeating that I think Christians sometimes forget that Jesus was Jewish, and he fit in his Jewish Wait, world. what? Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. He converted from Protestantism. I think, <laughs> I think he was a Calvinist. <laughs> he first. Was, yeah, right. But then he said, "Now that's ridiculous. <laughs> right. right. Descendant of Calvin. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, Jesus, yeah, shocker, <laughs> Spoiler alert, folks! Jesus was Jewish. Yeah, I'm really actually Jewish. So was Paul, by the way. And we do sometimes forget that we we read into the New Testament, which is a, a tendency, maybe an understandable tendency, but we do read into the New Testament later developments of Christian theology. And when we do that, we lose the flavor, and I think the power and the provocativeness of things that Jesus is talking about.
1: All right. Well, let's get into our conversation with uh, AJ Levine. Let's do it. I think the parables, a lot of them are really
2: provocative. And one of the reasons parables are sometimes listed as difficult to understand is because they tell us stuff we actually really know deep down, but we've got it so repressed we don't want to acknowledge it. <laughs> so we resist it. It's like, you know, you really do need to take care of the poor. Yeah, I know that, but I really, really don't want to. <laughs>
1: Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief.
0: You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and She said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused and it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com, promo code normal people, that's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com, promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. microdose.com, promo code normal people.
3: So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com.
0: Well, AJ, thank you for being on our podcast. This is very exciting for us, and I think we have a lot of things to talk about. You know, One thing that you've written about a lot and spoken about a lot, and that I think has helped a lot of people and provoked a lot of people, too, in a good way, is I guess how Christians view their own faith vis-a-vis the Jewish matrix where it started, it seems that, I think you would agree, a lot of Christians have stereotypes about the Jewishness or lack thereof of the New Testament and the Jewish roots of their faith. And maybe you can just help us understand what some of those stereotypes might be from your experience.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, I think we all have stereotypes, whether we're Jewish or Christian or atheist or Muslim or whatever. What I find in working with a number of Christian congregations is they begin with the idea that Jesus is Jewish. So that's no longer surprising news. But then when I ask them, so what does that mean? What are the characteristics of being Judaism? Then I get comments like, well, all the Jews are really legalistic and Jesus invents freedom of thought. Or the Jews are epitomizing misogyny. They really hate women. And then Jesus invents feminism. Or Jews are interested in a God of wrath and Jesus invents this loving daddy God that stands behind you with T-ball. So stereotypes are often, whatever it is we don't like, that's what Judaism is. And then Jesus comes in and fixes it. People who hold these stereotypes are not anti-Jewish, they're not anti-Semitic, but I think the way they've been perhaps educated or the way the culture has conveyed to them information, they've gotten a sense that Jesus has to come to fix something that's really wrong, and that really wrong thing winds up being Judaism.
0: Well, can, can you elaborate a little bit on that because you know, where, if you had to riff, where do those stereotypes actually come from? Why are they held? You said culturally and this and that, but can you be more specific? Maybe there are different reasons, you know, in different communities, but just in your experience and talking with people, where do they come from? Why are they taught in churches?
2: Well, some of them are there because of uninformed readings of certain New Testament passages. So, I'm not saying that the New Testament is anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic, but very early on, interpretation certainly moves in that direction. So, if Jesus is having a a disagreement with fellow Jews, which he does frequently, by the way, Jews frequently disagree with other (laughs) Jews. I've heard, yes. This is nothing new either. But when Jesus has debates with Pharisees, for example, the congregation will sometimes get the message that the Pharisees and what they're saying represents Judaism, and then Jesus represents something over and against it, rather than just another voice within it. So, part of it's from the the Gospels themselves. Part of it's from uh, unfortunate hymns. Part of it's from well-meaning but undereducated Sunday school teachers who pass along a somewhat crass view of early Judaism to their little children's charges. And since... Priests and pastors don't always disabuse congregants of these childhood comments. The stereotypes stay in place. Mm
0: -hmm. Do you you think that the the New Testament encourages the stereotypes, or do you think the stereotypes are more fundamentally about misunderstandings of the text?
2: It's hard for me to say what the text encourages. All I can do is say what I see people taking from it. Right. I don't think that a a Christian reading or anyone reading the New Testament should have to come up with an anti-Jewish concept from it any more than when we Jews read the story of Exodus and we find out how horrible the Egyptians were to us. It should make us into anti-Egyptian people. So, we're always choosing how to read, and we're choosing what to bring to the readings and what to take from them. I, I'm not inclined to blame the text, but I am inclined to blame interpreters uh, who read the text without a, a dollop of generosity to the people who, whose story the text is not
1: telling. Right. Hmm. What are some. Some different, you know, I, the first thing that comes to mind, at least in my training where I was brought up in a lot of these stereotypes and then being introduced to someone like E.P. Sanders with mm-hmm. uh, this covenantal gnomism of saying, hey, if you, read, if you read carefully, it's not about works. And so some of these stereotypes aren't uh, properly founded. Would you, like, what are some ways of reading the text that would maybe be more generous as you've talked about it. Well,
2: a, a standard way of the beginning is you judge a, a tradition by the best that it has to offer rather than it by its more difficult models. Um, and you never compare best of one tradition with, with worst of another. Another way of, of looking at texts is to say how do people whose stories are being told here understand their own story? So that if one were to talk about Judaism at the time of Jesus or Judaism since, do people who know the Jewish tradition because they know the Jewish sources or people who live the Jewish tradition today because they're living out a life of Judaism, would they recognize themselves in those descriptions? When I look at a text, all texts are tendentious because all authors have certain biases. It's like listening to MSNBC versus Fox News. You're going to get the same story, but it's going to be spun very, very different ways. Say, if I'm reading Paul, Yeah, what, what would the Galatians have written back to Paul?
0: Right. <laughs>
2: <laughs> What's their side of the story? We um, have this nice food fight that, that Peter and Paul have in Antioch that Paul records in the Epistle to the Galatians. I want to know what Peter was thinking. Right. So, whenever we look at a text, uh, particularly a text that's purported to record some form of history. I want to know if there are other sides to it, mm-hmm. um, and what is it that I'm not being told, and what don't what do not I fully understand because I don't have all the details.
0: Right, hmm. you know, I wonder if just as I'm hearing you talk, Aj, I wonder if part of the stereotypes with respect to Jesus and the Gospels is driven by certain ways of understanding Paul.
2: Oh, yes, I think that's certainly true, and probably more so in the Protestant communion. I was about to say, because
0: Paul is everything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even in churches, many of us grow up in churches where Paul is preached on all the time. Mm -hmm. They don't really know what to do with Jesus because they're just stories. Paul (laughs) gives you doctrine.
2: (laughs) Yeah, Paul tells you what to do.
0: Exactly um, right. And Paul seems, I don't know, I mean, what, I shouldn't put words in your mouth. Uh, do you think Paul's hard on Jews? Being a, I
2: think Paul's hard on everybody. Paul's yeah. even hard on Jews. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, there's a new movement in Pauline studies called Paul within Judaism. Yeah. So uh, the, the old perspective, then we had the new perspective. Now we've got the new, new perspective. Yeah. Um, and, and what this does is fully locates Paul as a practicing Jew um, who is writing to predominantly Gentile congregations and saying, listen, um, your honorary members of this group and following Jewish law is absolutely terrific for Jews, but you Gentiles, you pagans, you cannot follow Jewish law because or Mosaic law or Torah, because if you did, you'd be Jews. But mm-hmm. one of the signs of the Messianic age is that the Gentile nations come to worship the God of Israel. But when they do so, they worship the God of Israel as Gentiles. They don't convert to Jews because God has to be the God of both the Jews and the mm-hmm. Gentiles. So Paul's becoming apoplectic that people in his congregations want to do more Jewish things. And he's saying, no, 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 stay Gentiles. It's fine.
0: But what about that pressure coming from Jews within those congregations, which seems to be the case, at least in Galatians?
2: Yeah, that does seem to be the case with the men from James. But here we have one party, and it's not actually clear what they're asking. Paul refers to them as the circumcision party which I think would be a lovely name for, like, a fraternity party, just for, like, a fundraiser. Um,
0: anyway, We're sort of the school mascot, but anyway. That yeah. might
2: work. Um, <laughs> uh, so, he, they're called the circumcision party. I don't know whether they expect the Gentiles to become circumcised, because if they're claiming to be under the covenant with Abraham, God says to Abraham, unless you are circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, you are cut off from the covenant, which I'd love to think is a pun, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, or is he? Ask, are the men from James asking these folks actually to convert to Jesus, you know, circumcision and everything else?
0: Right, right.
2: So that's already not clear. I think another problem that they had is um, we're now 10 years after the cross, 20 years after the cross, and Jesus has not yet come back. And suddenly you have all these Gentiles in the churches, right. um, and people have to figure out what to do with them, right? Right. Should they stay Gentiles? Should they convert to Judaism? Should they convert to Judaism so that they won't fall under difficulties with the Roman state? Right. Um, so we have to look at Rome as a, a third player here and what are the political right, right. Going? So here's one of those questions. I would love to be, at, be able to ask the people from James, so what were you thinking? Right. You know, Uh, And and to say to the Galatians, who who seem to be lining up to get circumcised, you know, what were you thinking here also?
0: It's it's so striking how, you know, reading the New Testament, we are coming in the middle of conversations. As as one of my seminary professors said, you're reading somebody else's mail.
2: Exactly so.
0: And we're not seeing everything. And how much, I mean, this just struck me recently over the past few years reading Romans and thinking to myself, I think Paul's winging it. (laughs) Yeah. You know, because he's, he's really trying to work out a problem, which is the significance of Jesus now, and mm-hmm. how that relates to Jewish-Gentile relations. Right. And to he's going power, back and forth, problem, and he's yes, not terribly consistent, you know, and, and I just, I'm, I, I sort of like that, it humanizes the book a bit, rather than a perfect piece of systematic theology, which is how it's often presented in Protestantism.
2: Yeah. Although, it, it, even when I was in graduate school, back when Noah was still on the ark, um, <laughs> we were always told Paul is not a systematic theologian, and, and don't try to wrap him into something that's based on your theology rather than allow Paul to speak for himself. Right. Uh, the Paul one reads in 1 Thessalonians is very different than the Paul one reads in um, in Romans or uh, the Paul who's writing to the Corinthians and is really upset because they're messing up fellowship and they're messing up the gospel. It's very different than the Paul writing this this lovely, gentle letter to the Philippians.
0: Do you think he's more mature in Romans than he was in Galatians or the First Thessalonians? Well,
2: he's certainly older.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, wiser. Let's say, not mature. Mature is a horrible way of putting it. He's just he's he's wiser from having lived and work through this and having worked out his own theology and that sort of thing?
2: I, I think to some extent, but all the all the letters are occasional letters. They're ad hoc letters, and yeah. what he wants from the Romans, is, which is a community he did not found, is different than what he wants to do with the Corinthians, which is a community he did found. Um, there's a difference between what you say to your own children and what you say to the neighbor's kids.
0: Right. Um, mm-hmm.
2: Or what you say to the kids in the house you're about to move to across the country. So, so we...
1: We have to take into consideration paul 's relationship with his audience, right, so even the way you 're talking about you know Paul is in process, and i would I would imagine that from a congregational standpoint, you talked about speaking with congregations these notions of you know we're, I think we 're getting more and more comfortable as Protestants with the idea that the Old Testament has a lot of this process in it, and it's not fully developed. And I think a lot of that's because we then just foist those expectations onto the New Testament. But now mm-hmm. to hear that, you know, how do congregations typically take that news, in your experience, or um, folks in your classes, you know, how do they grapple with this idea that maybe maybe Paul hasn't doesn't have it all figured out either, um, and that the, the gospel writers are, are still trying to figure it out. And if everyone's still trying to figure it out, how do people usually respond to that news? Well, Paul tells us he
2: doesn't have it all figured out. Um, if, by the time he gets to Romans 11 and he's talking about the salvation of Jews and Gentiles, he basically says it's a mystery, and it's a wonderful mystery, and it's a beautiful mystery, but he doesn't quite understand how it works either. That's fine. We don't have all the information in because if we did, the Bible would be God mm. as opposed to something to, which points to God. So, I, part of the problem we have is we confuse the two. So, we take the Bible as somehow the idol and, and we miss the process. Um, when I work with congregations i'm usually working in gospel and acts rather than in paul and what i will do is say listen if you have a particular theology that works for you keep that in place i'm i'm not there to undermine your theological views heaven forbid what i want to do is add a little bit of history so that i'm not taking away i'm adding on and if the addition changes the way you've seen things that's all to the good the gospel of john makes it very clear that the holy spirit still has stuff to teach um, so, if we're set that the Bible has said everything that it needs to say, and we've got all the interpretations in, in Trinitarian terms, we've just put the Spirit out of business. And that seems a sort of sad way of treating the Trinity.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and you mentioned the Book of Acts. So, maybe, uh, is there a talking point or two that you often come to when you talk about the Book of Acts with respect to these stereotypes that Christians may have of Judaism?
2: We have a variety of stereotypes that surface there. Um, from the beginning of Luke, Luke's uh, synagogue sermon that Jesus gives in chapter 4, right. um, all the way through to the end of Acts, generally the view is that synagogues are not good places for Jesus worshipers. Uh, you, know, you walk in, they'll try to throw you off a cliff, or they'll beat you up or something like that. Um, and, and to look at questions of religious competition in antiquity, uh, to look at the concerns that some folks might have been having, um, particularly in the early second century, which is when I think Acts was written, about what do we as members of the body of Christ, what do we as Christians do with those Jews who are claiming the same text that we're claiming, and they have a different reading. You know, who's the legitimate heir of Abraham? Who's the legitimate heir of the people Israel? And that's one of those things that Acts needs to work out as well.
0: Yeah. So, um, why early second century? That's that. That is a view that others espouse. I mean, uh, again, not to get off topic too much, but it actually affects how you read the Book of Acts, right? Um, yeah. So, what, what uh, help help our, our listeners understand a little bit about why you would do something like say Acts might be second century?
2: Why well, put it up so late? Um, because it looks like Acts is trying to manipulate Paul's reputation. Uh-huh. Um, So, Paul's going to be a problem for a variety of churches. The Gnostics liked Paul. And certain groups who were still holding on to Torah had to deal with Paul. Um, Paul has different ways of expressing himself from the earlier correspondence to the later correspondence. So in the same way, the pastoral epistles, which I do not think were written by Paul, I think they were written in Paul's name. This would be First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus, um, want to take Paul in a very sort of bourgeois direction. Slaves be obedient to your masters and shut the women up. Um, And, you know, make sure you have bishops and deacons and all sorts of church orders so everything is just the same as sure as the pastoral epistles would put it. The pastoral epistles are one way of taking Paul's legacy. Acts is another way of taking that legacy. Acts tells me that Peter and Paul just got along spankingly well. Yeah. As far as I can tell from the Pauline epistles. Acts tells me that, you know, the, the folks who are running the church could hold a conference, on what to do with the Gentiles, and everybody agreed with everybody at a committee meeting—unbelievable. <laughs> um, so I think it's—I think it's, I, I think it's a, a way of understanding history that Luke is now. Producing
0: mm-hmm.
2: for the second century church to say who are we?
0: Why, this Christian origins business is complicated,
2: <laughs> extremely, it's and almost it's, as
0: complicated as Hebrew origins.
2: Well, or how we tell the story of the United States, yeah, you know. Huh. So, do we? T- I'm from Massachusetts, I learned all about the pilgrims and how splendid they were, and how they were into religious freedom, really, you know, and how we love the Native Americans, really. And it was just lovely and terrific. And then I became an adult and I read some of the other accounts and it wasn't quite so nice. Um, So we all tell our stories the way we want to hear them. Um, The Hebrews did it. The early followers of Jesus did it. The United States has done it. The world does it. It's what we do.
0: Yeah. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast-growing trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever.
1: We got our bushes in
0: That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different.
1: There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary for service, and for leadership. Safwat Marzouk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People.
0: It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. So, how, how often do you address Christian audiences in church settings a year, roughly? 50 weeks or so. Excuse me? About 50 weeks or so. 50? Yeah, 50. That gives I, you- I
2: usually get Christmas off unless I'm talking with Unitarians.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, and I guess, I mean, this is... Um, I'm trying to wrap my arms around something, and ask, by asking this question, again, are there recurring issues that come up in these congregations? I, I imagine maybe not because they're so diverse.
2: Oh, there are some that are that, that do come up, not always, but often. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, there's they, there's a desire to know about the historical Jesus and what he was actually talking about. Um, a lot of people want to talk about heaven and hell and salvation and a concern for what if their faith is not in line with what their their childhood teachers taught them. Yeah. Um, life after death, uh, heaven and hell. Um, it, a lot of congregations want to talk about the contemporary Middle East and what the Bible has to say about it. Mm-hmm. Um, some of it is a little on the fundamentalist side, like, does, you know, does God predict the coming of whoever? Uh, but a lot of it is, um, what, do, what does Jesus think about the land? What does the text say about early Zionist thought and so on? And how do you read the Bible and try, in a Christian context, to be faithful both to the promises to Israel and to concern for Palestinians? Right. Uh, So, things really vary. Um, I've been talking a lot about parables recently, because I wrote a book about parables two years ago that that did get some decent play. Short stories by Jesus. Short stories by Jesus. And what I find is, and this is wonderful, people want to tell me what their interpretations of parables are. Hmm. So, you know, once you tell a story and you give, you give a, it could mean this and it could mean that, what I find in congregations is it gives the congregants permission actually to do the interpretation on their own, rather than leave that to the pastor or priest and say, you're free to do this too. These parables are open invitations, tell me what you think, mm-hmm. and they're anxious to share those thoughts. I think that's terrific.
4: Hey everyone, my name is Sean Bloom from Charlotte, North Carolina, and I'm part of the producers group here at The Bible for Normal People. One thing I have appreciated about this podcast is the way that Pete, Jared, and their terrific guests share biblical interpretations with historical context and quality scholarship that is accessible to normal people like me, and also leaves me wanting to know and learn more. If you've gotten something from this free podcast, I want to take a moment to mention how you can support Pete and Jared in their work. This podcast is brought to you by supporters on the Patreon platform. For as little as $1 per month, you can be part of the group that brings this podcast to normal people everywhere. As a gift for your support, we have book studies, chat groups, and lots of videos from Pete and Jared, so check it out at patreon.com slash thebiblefornormalpeople. If you aren't able to support the show financially, go to iTunes and rate and review this podcast. That can go a long way to help others find us. One group in particular that we would like to thank is our producers group, who work hard to tell Pete and Jared where they're messing up and how to do better. Thanks to Mark McKiff, Mike, Edward Glasscock, Rachel Taylor, Dustin Bauckham, Kevin Hoffer, Ted Cole, and Kevin Marshall. The Bible for normal people couldn't happen without you. Now, back to the podcast.
1: You, you mentioned going to these congregations, and and you mentioned as one of the themes this idea of the historical Jesus. And, mm-hmm. you know, who who was he? And, you, and tying that into the idea that we all interpret our origin stories in certain lights. So, how do you usually with these congregations, how do you step into that? You know, you, again, you said earlier, you don't go into sort of rock people's faith or to unfound already mm-hmm. things, but to add it. How do you do that within a a sensitive subject like the historical Jesus and how the biblical writers interpreted certain events or narratives or reinterpreted them.
2: Yeah. Um, uh, Because I'm not putting their, their faith into, any sort of question. There's a little bit of safety right there because I really, really like Jesus. Uh, (laughs) It's not as if I'm going to come in and say, he
0: likes you too, AJ. So
2: (laughs) that's good to know. He probably loves me as the song goes. um. (laughs) So, I'm coming in with, with a, a sense of respect, and here I can, I, because I've been doing this for so many years, I can trade on my reputation. People know that I'm not out to bash Christianity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I can say is, if you think Jesus is interesting, I can tell you why he's even more interesting. And if you love Jesus, I can tell you about the background. Um mm-hmm. So that, you know, in in the same way today, if we claim to love somebody, we we want to meet the parents and we want to see where the person grew up and we want to know the favorite sports team. I can contextualize him in terms of first century Judaism by what I know about history. What was living in Nazareth like? What were women's roles at the time? What was the economic distribution? What do we know about Rome in Galilee and in Jerusalem? What do we know about what people eat and why is Jesus eating all the time? So just opening up those basic questions, it makes Jesus more interesting. It makes the text come alive. I love talking about it Mm. um, and I can get people interested in
0: it. Mm. Not bad for uh, a Jew, an atheist Jew. Is that what I mean? An atheist Jew teaches New Testament in a Christian context. Is yeah, that athe-
2: how- atheist might be a little strong. I'm just, I'm just not a believer. That doesn't yeah, mean, no. yeah, that
0: I can't. You know,
2: I, I, it's just really not part of me. Um, I was never, even when I was a child, I never thought that there was some sort of supernatural power in the traditional sense of defining God. But I was always very, very much interested in what people did so that if they claim to believe something, well, then how does that, that belief operate in terms of how you act? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. You talk about, you know, you know the tree by its fruits. Well, I want to know what the fruits are. Yeah. Um, right. I, think, I think belief is like love. It's, it's nothing you can talk somebody into or out of. If you have it, it's a gift, and if you don't have it, you just deal with it.
1: You know, maybe just not to be too far, I don't think it's too far off topic, but maybe talk a little bit then. About just your story and how you ended up being a, a professor in these in these topics that you know traditionally would come from uh, at least historically in someone's past a, a belief or um, a religious commitment. So how did you how did you end up there?
2: Well, a belief and religious commitment are are, are not mutually exclusive here, right? Um, so I, I was raised in a conservative Jewish household. We went to services on Friday night. I went to junior congregation on Saturday morning. I went to Sunday school on Sunday, and I went to Hebrew school on Mondays and Wednesdays. On the other hand, my father believed that one should celebrate the Sabbath, celebrate Shabbos with the best that one had, because that's what you do on the Sabbath, which in his view was lobster, which is you know hardly kosher. So, I, you know, it, it was a traditional Jewish household except when it wasn't. Mm. So, and I'm, I'm still, in, I'm, I'm, I am a member of an Orthodox synagogue um, and I love to pray and I love to be in my congregation. I love the people there. I love the Torah study. So I, I, I'm practicing in that sense. I'm just not sure that there, there's a supernatural something or other that's hearing all that. Right? Yeah. Um, it would not surprise me that there are people in the pews on Sunday morning that are doing exactly the same thing, that there's a comfort from saying the Our Father or from singing certain hymns, but if you ask those folks, do you believe in the traditional God that you were taught when you were a child, the answer might be, mm, maybe not so much. Yeah. yeah. Um, the neighborhood where I grew up was almost entirely Portuguese, Roman, Catholic, and I loved all the... Catholics. it was fabulous, and it was beautiful. Um, nuns and priests and statues in the streets and the, the Feast of the Blessed Sacrament and Mass. Mass was great, and I'm old enough to remember the Latin Mass. And I used to go to church with my friends so because go, it got me out of Sunday school. Um, mm-hmm. Going to church on Sunday morning was like going to synagogue on Saturday morning. It was a bunch of guys in robes speaking in a language I did not understand. So, mm-hmm. you know, And the choreography of of the Catholic Mass is not dissimilar to the choreography of of a a Sabbath service in synagogue or a Protestant, you know, one-hour worship from 11 to 12 on Sunday. So, I I like liturgy. I like worship. I like ritual. And I did not understand why people in my hometown were saying to me, you killed our Lord. Mm. So, you know, how how do you put this, this beautiful and welcoming tradition together with hateful teaching? Right. So that's how I became interested in this material.
1: Yeah, and you, you, know, you mentioned kind of having one foot, even growing up, kind of one foot in the Jewish world and one foot kind of in the Christian world. So what are some things that you've kind of learned or would say that Christians could do well to learn from engaging Judaism and some oh. things that are beautiful about that tradition that Christians could, could emulate and, and do well with that?
2: Oh, what a fabulous question. I think Christians should argue more because it's healthy.
0: We do um, that, believe me.
2: Yeah, but you don't do it as well as the
0: Jews do. There you do. go. Okay, <laughs> elaborate please, Adrian. <AJ. laughs> well, I
2: mean, if, if we look at the New Testament, Jesus is frequently arguing with fellow Jews. And what that means is it puts him right in the heart of Judaism rather than takes him out of Judaism. If you look at rabbinic literature, post-biblical Jewish literature. It's rabbi this says this, rabbi that says that, some third rabbi says the third thing, the people do what they want, and they've been arguing over this stuff for 2,000 years. And the reason we can do it so well is because at the end of the day, we're all still Jews. Because Jews never settle down just to be a religion and just to be a belief system. Jews have always kept an ethnic component or a peoplehood component to who we are. So, our arguments take place in the family, and just as any relatively healthy family will have certain disagreements, at the end of the day, you're all still brothers and sisters and parents and children. What happens in Christian communities is if you argue too much, if you disagree too much, you put yourself out of the communion, Mm. because if you get into a tradition by belief, you get out by belief. Mm -hmm. So, it cuts back on argument. I think if Christians took baptism more seriously, they'd be able to argue better. Because baptism means you're in the system, and it's not something that washes off.
1: Right. So, have you have you seen congregate? I mean, I think that's really well put. Have you seen that in practice, where there is this sense that what I hear you saying is within a Jewish community, you can't opt out. It's an ethnic thing, and so that allows for real disagreement in a healthy way because you're never
2: our heretics are still our heretics, right?
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. Have you seen that? I mean, do you have examples of where that is being fruitful within a Christian congregation where they're taking baptism so seriously that they're willing to kind of continue to come back to the table again and again, heretic or not?
2: It it happens sometimes, but it's easier to decamp. So, if um, if your church doesn't do what you want it to do, you just set up another church, or you found another denomination, and heaven knows Christian denominations have proliferated over the centuries. Mm-hmm. So, you have, you know, Church X says, I think we're in favor of slavery, and then people say, no, we're not, so now you have a division in the churches, and then you can divide over smoking, and then you can divide over boycott, divest, and sanction regarding Israel, or homosexuality, or women's ordination. Mm-hmm. And the easiest thing to do in the Christian communions is not to stay together, but to go to another church or to found another denomination.
1: Right, and I hear you saying there's something there's something uh, we're we're lacking in that ease of disunity. Where we, if we stayed together, we might be able to develop a better sense of arguing conflict and come to some greater sense of truth or unity. What's kind of the what's the end result of that in Jewish communities that you've been a part of? What's the What's the beauty of being able to argue better?
2: I I think it makes for a more interesting congregation because people are less afraid to say what they think. And of course, this doesn't happen in all congregations. I find in Torah's study, and this is where it's really helpful for me, is we can take a text and we can take the text apart, and everybody can say, I think the text means this, and we can argue over what it means. And we can say, instead of restricting this text to one singular meaning, one doctrinal statement, It could mean this, it could mean that, and then what we do in this discussion as we look at our tradition and we say, you know, what were they saying in the 12th century, and what were they saying in the 4th century, and what were they saying in the 19th century, and how do I add my voice to this, this wonderful orchestra, or sometimes cacophony, of multiple interpretations, rather than always looking for the correct reading. I find with a number of my Protestant students, they want to get it right what's the right reading of this text, rather than allow the text to have multiple meanings, all of which may be right under certain circumstances.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you find that is, that is more of a problem within Protestantism than, say, Roman Catholicism or Orthodoxy?
2: It, well, it's more of a problem in Protestantism because the Protestant sermon is longer than the Roman Catholic homily. Yeah. Um, you, you've, got, you've got more time to make mistakes. Uh, you also have more people doing the preaching. Right? Because not that many people in the Catholic Church are going to be giving homilies on Sunday morning.
0: And you Uh, have the centrality of preaching, of the, the communication of doctrine. Right. The sermon is so central for Protestantism. That actually is what makes us Protestants, I think, you know, with the Reformation and all that sort of thing.
2: Oh, yeah, the Reformation. That's been around for a while. Um, the um, it, It's what I said before about the choreography is the same. So, what happens in a worship service is the Word of God mean, has to be made palpable, has to be made present to the congregation. So, that in the synagogue, it's the Torah, um, which is taken out of the ark and, and actually walked through the congregation, and then read to the congregation. Mm-hmm. In the Catholic Mass, it's really the Eucharist. So it's the Word of God in the communion meal. And in the Protestant Church, it's the sermon. That's mm-hmm. that's the central part where the Word of God is made flesh, made real. So it's really important to get it right.
0: Right. And yes. that
2: makes it difficult. It's for central. The inter- it's
0: absolutely central. Everything else ramps up to it, and the rest um, spins off of it down to the climax of the service. And right. that's very much the case. Yeah, right.
2: And, I mean, you really can't get Eucharist wrong. I mean, there's, there's a certain choreography to it, and you can go to any Catholic church in the world, and it's going to be more or less the same thing. You can follow it. The Torah reading is going to be more or less the same thing in any synagogue in the world. I can walk into any Orthodox synagogue in the world, know what the Torah reading is going to be on a Saturday morning and be able to follow it because it will always be in Hebrew. Mm-hmm. But the sermon. That you have to come up with on your own. That's harder. Yeah. So there's more, there's more at risk there, but there may be also more to gain if somebody suddenly hears something that he or she had never heard before. And then, and then the word really becomes alive and then, you know, actualizes itself. Mm-hmm. Protestant sermons, when they're good, are fabulous, I just wish they were good more often. <laughs> yeah, well, it's
0: hard to pull that off every week.
2: It really is,
0: you know. It really, especially is. if you go on for forty-five minutes. It sometimes happens,
2: or if you're on the lectionary and you have a passage which really isn't opening
0: itself up to you that particular week. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. Well, listen. Let, let's uh, just a couple things more about Jesus here. Um, I'm trying to think of where I read this. It's, it might have been in the blurb to short stories uh, by Jesus or something that maybe you wrote, but I think you used the phrase, sanitizing Jesus.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Does that ring a bell? Right. Uh,
2: or we talking about domesticating him. I'm not domesticating sure. Domesticating
0: Jesus. That's, that's a domesticating Jesus or sanitizing. So, t- talk about d- d- domesticating Jesus. What does that mean and where does it happen?
2: Yeah, I think the parables, a lot of them are really provocative. And one of the reasons parables are sometimes listed as difficult to understand is because they tell us stuff we actually really know deep down, but we've got it so repressed we don't want to acknowledge it. <laughs> so we resist it. It's like your, your mother telling you you need to write the thank you notes. Like yeah, I know I want it. I have to do that, but I really really don't want to. Or you know you really do need to take care of the poor. Yeah, I know that, but you know I've got a golf game next week. So. Uh, it, What we do is we wind up taming the parables, and I I think to a great extent we take away the more difficult messages and we turn them into sweet little children's stories, which is how many Christians heard them to begin with, because you hear them in vacation Bible school, or you hear them in Sunday school, and they're lovely little stories, which are designed to be comforting rather than designed to be challenging, designed to be provocative. Right. Do you Um, you
0: have a favorite
2: parable? um, I have a number of them that I really, really like. I I really like the prodigal son. Yeah. And I I have for a number of years been teaching in a maximum security prison here in Nashville. Uh, From the
0: inside or from the outside?
2: No, I I bring Vanderbilt students out to the prison and and we Inside
0: the prison, which You're makes not a prisoner the, yourself. The world, then. Okay, and just clarifying for our listeners.
2: Mm. No, it's a men's prison. Um, so, <laughs> um, and, and for them, the prodigal son means God will love you even if you have done something really heinous, and, mm-hmm. and, and that's that is a meaningful and powerful reading. So I don't want to take that away. So this is my sense: is I don't want to take away people's theology; I just want to add to it. I don't think that's what it, what it would have meant to first-century Jews. I think it's a good reading for early Christians. First century Jews already knew that you could do something really horrible and God would still hang in there. I mean, golden calf was not one of our better moments. And somehow <laughs> the calf still managed to prevail. Um So um, what I do with that parable is I read it in light of the first two parables in Luke chapter 15, which is the parable of the lost sheep, which I think really is the parable of the inept sheep owner, um, and the parable of the lost coin, which is the parable of the frantic housewife. Um, and, and what happens in each is they're typically interpreted as, oh, um, you know, Jesus is the good shepherd who goes after the lost sheep, and, and somehow the woman never gets to be God, but, you know, the woman somehow fits. <laughs> to uh, and then dad in the third parable is God, and the prodigal son is the sinful but repentant Christian, and then the older brother always winds up being the Jew or the Pharisee who doesn't like this, you know, repentant kid coming in and getting yeah. back, you know, I, I think those are not good readings. What we miss, and the first parable sets us up quite nicely is it starts out, there was, you know, which man among you having a hundred sheep? So we're not talking about a a guy who's fairly wealthy, who loses one. Well, as soon as Jesus says who loses one, I know that the sheep owner isn't God because God doesn't lose us, Mm -hmm. right? If the sheep went astray, which is Matthew's version, you can make the case. But, you know, the guy lost the sheep. So you have to ask, if you have a hundred sheep and you're down one sheep, how do you know? Because you can't tell the sheep, here, line up in groups of 10, because your sheep can't count, <laughs> and you can't do sound off, because sheep don't know their names, and God bless them, they do kind of look alike. So the only way you know, if you have 100 sheep and you've lost one, is you count them, and you count, and the guy comes up one sheep short, and he gets all out, search, finds the sheep rejoicing, brings the sheep home, calls up all of his friends and neighbors, and says, rejoice with me, because I found my sheep like they care, and then there's a big party. Mm-hmm. And then we have a woman who has 10 coins and she loses one. Okay, if she don't repent, coins are less likely to repent. Um, you know, when it's Luke who comes in and says, like, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, that's Luke. But no first century Jews get that meaning. If you have 10 coins and you lose one, how do you know? Because you count. So she counts. She comes up a coin short, all out search, finds the coin, calls up all of her girlfriends, the Greek is in the feminine. Um, and says, rejoice with me because my coin that was lost is now found. I think she spent more on the party than the coin was worth. But what, what Jesus has cleverly done here is we've gone 99 out of 100, 9 out of 10. And the next parable begins, there was a man who had two sons, which is fabulous because any Jew listening to this knows the plot line. <laughs> it was mm-hmm. Cain and Abel and, and Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau and every, every Jew knows, mm-hmm. go with the younger son. So what I'm expecting is I'll, have the, I'll, I'll get rid of the older son. He'll turn out to be, you know, hairy, stupid, and fratricidal, And I'll get rid of him, and then I'll, I'll date the younger brother. And that's not what happens. We have the whole story of the prodigal, which I trust your listeners will know. Mm-hmm. Um, and the prodigal finally comes back, and dad sees him and welcomes him back and accessorizes him and puts on barbecue. And there's this huge party. And the next line of the parable, which I think is one of the most profound lines in the New Testament, is just exquisite. The older brother is out in the field, and he hears the sound of music and dancing. Um, And and he calls a passerby to ask what's going on and, and, you know, what's happening. And he's told, your brother's come back safe and sound, and your father killed the fat calf. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. In other words, they had enough time to call the band and the caterer. And nobody called the older brother because there was a man who had two sons, and he forgot to count. Hmm. And what the parable then does is it it reminds us, whom have we made to feel discounted? Uh, Who have we overlooked? Have we failed to count? Have we failed to make everybody feel counted? Because it may be that the person who feels discounted or whom we've ignored is a member of our own family who's been there the entire time. And we've never invited that person to the party. That's a whole lot harder to do.
1: Wow. That's a really interesting read. My my question off the back of that is, you know, throughout this, you talk about domesticating Jesus and having, quote, good readings. But then Mm -hmm. earlier we talked about the parables inviting multiple interpretations. And how do you, you know, what makes a reading good if, on the other hand, you invite multiple interpretations? How do you navigate those would seem like intention?
2: It's a good question. I look at parables as a genre, uh, okay. and I want to take the genre as a genre that's designed to challenge. It goes back to that old line about, re- and I don't know who originally said this, that religion was designed to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Right. Uh, and I think that parables are there to do some of that afflicting. Um, I think so in part because the parables I have in the scriptures of Israel are afflicting parables. Like Nathan's parable of the lamb told to King David in order to indict him for his murder of Uriah the Hittite and the adultery with Bathsheba. Um, or Jotam's parable of the trees, which is designed to indict his brother Abimelech, who's a, a false judge um, and attempting to establish a throne. Um, A number of of rabbinic parables were also indicting parables, sometimes indicting other people, sometimes even indicting God, because if you're Jewish, you can do that. So I want the parables to come up with some sort of challenge, and I want them to move me. There's enough else there that will assure me, that will comfort the afflicted, like the Beatitudes. I want the parables to do some afflicting. Um, And just for another quick example, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, people today typically read themselves as a Samaritan and we say, of course, we will be the ones to help the guy by the side of the road and all that. In antiquity, the earliest interpretations we have from the church fathers um, called the parable, the parable of the man who fell among the robbers. I, I think the original interpretations might be something along the lines of I'm in a ditch, two people who should have stopped to help do not, and the person who's coming near me is somebody I think is going to rape me or kill me, and then I have to realize that this person I think is my enemy is the one who's going to save me, and that's really hard to picture, but it's essential if we're all to think that we're in the image and likeness of the divine, Hmm. in whom I may or may not believe.
0: Yeah, (laughs) oh my. Well, listen, AJ, we're, we're sadly, we're coming to the end of our time here. I'd like two more hours with you, but that's not going to happen.
2: You could always call me back.
0: Even though you're on central time we're on eastern time, that's not going to happen. Um, but listen, as, as we close here, um, any projects that have recently come out or those that are going to come out somewhat soon, at least from the time of our recording? And also let people know where, if any place, they can find you on the Internet.
2: Well, I I have a Facebook page, um, but I don't know how to access it. My daughter runs it. (laughs) Wow. You know, I'm not really good with technology, but but if people write to me on my Facebook page, um, about once a week, Sarah triages it and she lets me know if I need to respond to somebody. So that's fine. Um, you can look up what I do on on at the Vanderbilt University homepage, so that will give you a sense of what I've written. Um, I have a book coming out in May that I'm really excited about from Westminster John Knox Good Presbyterian Press um, called "Who Counts." Um, I wrote it with Sandy Sasso, who is a um, noted children's book author, um, and it's about the parables in Luke chapter 15, um, and it's designed for like five to eight year olds. Um, so that's I'm just, amazing I, children's books. It's just fabulous. Um, With a note in the back to parents and teachers and caregivers saying, here's how the parable is traditionally interpreted. We don't want to take that away. We just want to add to it. Um, The second edition of the Jewish Annotated New Testament, which I co-edited with my good friend Mark Brettler of Duke University, um, is due out sometime in the early fall. Um, And this is a major revamp of the original. Um, I'm finishing up this month, God willing, a commentary on the Gospel of Luke, which I'm writing with my good friend Ben Witherington of Asbury Seminary, coming up from Cambridge University Press. And what Ben and I are trying to do is show how a very conservative United Methodist um, and a very odd Jew who goes to an Orthodox synagogue can read the Gospel of Luke together, and we talk about where we agree and also where we disagree Mm. and why. So, it becomes a model of, of how to do civil discourse in biblical
0: studies. That's fantastic. Well, listen, AJ, thank you for your time. We really appreciate it. And uh, we'd love to continue this conversation some future point in time.
2: I look forward to that. What fun to talk to you.
1: Same here. See you. Take care. All right. Thanks, folks, for uh, listening to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. If you want to keep the conversation going about uh, this and all kinds of stuff, there's all kinds of conversations happening on Slack. If you wanted to go to patreon.com front slash people, or just head over to uh, com or thebiblefornormalpeople.com and there's lots of blogs and articles and things to engage with there as well. So hopefully we can keep going on these interesting, fascinating stories uh, about the Bible that maybe we've never heard before. Absolutely. And thanks for listening,
0: folks as always we appreciate when you download and press play it means a lot yep see you next time see ya